to God. Let's look together now, the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you'll remember last week, we began our discussion of the book of James by first looking at Romans chapter 8. So every sermon as we walk through the book of James, I want us to keep on the forefront of our minds that James is not about a checklist of if I do what is written in the book of James, then I will be saved. The book of James is wisdom literature. It is how to live wisely in this world as a Christian. It presupposes what we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what James is writing is not, unless you do these things, you are still under condemnation. That is not how to approach this book. It is a book of living a godly Christian life wisely in this world. It is extremely practical, even as we can tell from these first eight verses. So we begin the letter in and of itself, and it starts off in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to remind us that this James, there are many in the Bible, but this is James, who is known in church history as James the Just. He is the brother, the technically half-brother of Jesus. His father and mother are Joseph and Mary. He's the James that's referred to in Matthew 13, 55, when Jesus is preaching and teaching, and the brothers and sisters of Jesus actually come to try and drag him away, presupposing that he is a lunatic and that there's no hope for our brother. He's lost his mind. And the people are speaking and saying, wait a minute, this guy's, this guy's a guy we know. We, we know his brothers and his sister. We know James and Joseph. We, we know his family. He's just an average, everyday God, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Not to be confused with James, who was the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember the, the, the sons of thunder. James, the brother of John, the apostle, was executed in Acts chapter 12. So it, it's not that James. It's also not James, the son of Alphaeus, who was affectionately called probably something like little James. Over the years, it's been translated as James the Less. I prefer little James because he's not less of an apostle. He was just shorter than big James. 
So you had John's brother, James, who was like a tall guy. And then you had little James, and he was a little bit of a shorter guy. So you had big James and little James. It's not either one of those Jameses that were the apostles. It's Jesus's brother, James, which makes the very next couple words rather significant because he says, James, who is the brother of Jesus, executed about 62, like A.D., like, you know, it's 2022, like this was just 62, James, the brother of Jesus, was killed. But this is the James, and he says, a servant of God. Oh, yeah, all right, very Jewish, very good, very good, a servant of God, and, and equating God with this next phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are big words. He just called himself a servant of his brother. He called his brother Lord. Now look, I don't know about you guys, but the only time that my brother ever called me servant was in one of those like stereotypical sitcom scenarios where like you lose a bet and then your brother has to be your servant for the day or like servant for the week. But even then, I treaded very lightly because my brother is eight years older than me. And he had about 18-inch biceps when uh, we were growing up, and I, I didn't want to get on his bad side. There's never a moment in my life where I would have considered calling him Lord or saying I am his servant unless his enormous arms were wrapped firmly around my neck. And I said, you're the Lord, I'm your servant, uncle, let me go. That's not happening here. He's willingly writing a letter that will be publicly read and dispersed among all the Christians and all the churches And he calls himself his brother's servant willingly. Much like we said last week, how does that change? How do you go from sibling rivalry, I think you're a lunatic, you're out of your mind, and we're going to disown you from the family. Come back home and stop talking about all this Messiah business. The only way to change James's mind was for Jesus to die. Man, he, he was really serious about this Messiah stuff. He talked about it. His whole life. And I never believed him. All he had to do was give it up and he would have spared his own life. But he never does. He dies. James probably mourns the death of his brother. He's mad. He's probably frustrated. I just don't understand why he wouldn't back off of that whole Messiah thing. And then, three days later, they go to find Jesus' body and the tomb is empty. And Jesus has conquered death and risen from the grave. And he's excited and he is elated that his brother is alive again. But it makes him rethink everything about doubting who Jesus is and was and forever will be. And so readily, openly, posting on every social media site that he had available to him, which was a simple piece of parchment spread around to all the churches, James writes, I am gladly, happily the servant of God. Not just God, but the one who is equal to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right from the outset, Jesus' brother acknowledges that Jesus is God. That there is a Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is not some minor God. He's not a portion of God. He is fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This same thing continues as as he writes and he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings now the dispersion is talking about a very specific event the dispersion happened before what we looked at last week last week we looked at acts chapter 15 
verses 11 through 15, right? I, I accidentally last week attributed a portion of that to James when it was actually Peter talking. So Peter wraps up his little phrase in chapter 15, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And then he goes on to verse 14. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with the words of the prophets, this agrees. And then jump, jump down to verse 19. James gives his judgment. From verses 19 to 21, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. And everybody believes what James says. This letter is written to the dispersion before this happens. This letter is part of the reason that they believe James and go to him when they're having this quarrel in Acts chapter 15. When James speaks up, people are aware of the letter that he has written. And they are aware of the wisdom that James has and the way that his mind has been changed and his knowledge of the scriptures and of Jesus. And so they come to him and look to him for leadership after Jesus has died and risen again. So you got to remember, Jesus lived to be about 33 years old. So this letter is taking place sometime after Jesus has risen from the dead, but before Acts chapter 15, which was about in 48. So it's probably sometime in the early 40s when he's writing this after what's called the dispersion. So he writes to everybody who's been scattered everywhere. You'll think back with me to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, there's a very specific event that takes place. One of the men who had been elected to be a deacon, his name was Stephen. He stood up and he he gave this very rousing sermon. And it angered all of the religious leaders so badly that they took him outside and they stoned him to death. When they killed Stephen, it says in Acts chapter 8, here's what happened. Beginning in in verse 1, just skipping over, Saul was there. That's the very first part of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, dispersed, if you will, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you see a picture here that everybody is concentrated in Jerusalem. Think about all the thousands that have trusted in Christ. Remember, Peter gives his big sermon on the day of Pentecost, and there's over 3,000 added to the church. Over and over again, we read in Acts how the church is growing and multiplying in leaps and bounds. They're all centralized there in Jerusalem, and then Stephen is stoned. Once Stephen is stoned and killed, everyone feels that they have a license to kill Christians. And so persecution breaks out rampantly in the city of Jerusalem. And so people are dispersed all over the area. So James writes this letter to those people. He is quantifying that the people who believe in Jesus are now 
Israel. The church is the new Israel. And he sends to the 12 tribes, just like there were 12 apostles that were chosen. He's making that equal to one another. And he says, I'm sending this to the dispersion, which is the same kind of language that they would use after the 12 tribes of Israel were dispersed around the world. So then we move forward and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And if you don't have all of that background, it may seem silly, it may seem pedantic, but You need that background. I need that background because when he starts off right out the gate, after the greetings, after to all those who've been dispersed, after all of those things, he says, count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. That doesn't come out of left field. This is taking place sometime between when Stephen is stoned and people start getting killed. Did you catch what was happening in Acts chapter 8? Saul, just one representative, was going house to house to house. Much like in the Holocaust, he would investigate and try and find, are you hiding Christians? Are there Christians here? Are you guys Christians? What if I were to threaten the life of your child? Would you confess to being a Christian now? He is ravaging the church. There are other more severe words we could use for ravaging, but there are little ears present among us. I want us to grasp the seriousness and the weight of what is meant when it says Paul is ravaging the church. His name was Saul at the time, but he was the ringleader. Christians are being killed every chance that they can be. People have been dispersed, much like the crisis in Ukraine, only for religious reasons. They've been forced to leave their home to find somewhere safe to live, and they carry the gospel with them. They don't know where they're going to live. They don't know where they're going to work. They don't know where they're going to stop. Can you imagine if right now the police busted into your house wanting to know if you're a Christian or not. And then you've got to decide, what do I say? And if you survive the encounter, you've got to decide, do I stay here or do I go somewhere? So when he says, count it all joy, when you face trials of various kinds, he's writing as he personally experiences trials of various kinds. Not only is that persecution going on, but the early church is a mess. Sometimes we idealize the early church and act like that everything was perfect in the early church. If we could just get back to how things were in the early church, they couldn't even decide if you needed to be circumcised or not. They had to have a big meeting and they had to have a big secret meeting because if any of the Jews found out where they were meeting, they would have all been executed. So not only do they have the same kind of drama that we have today, but they have that drama while they're hiding and fighting for their lives. And James writes, in the midst of all of that, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Yeah, easy for you to say, James. No, as a matter of fact, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, it was far from easy for him to say. His brother just died. His family has nowhere to live, nowhere to go. People are looking to him for leadership in the church because he's Jesus' brother. All these people that he knows and loves that were his closest friends are being killed and driven from their home. And he says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Folks, I I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time counting trials as joy. And my trials pale in comparison to what James is dealing with. The main audience that he's writing to, my insignificant little struggles and trials pale in comparison to what was going on in the early church. And he says, count them as joy. But why? 
why should we count these trials as joy? Should we celebrate at suffering? No. That's not what James is saying. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because of verse 3. Continue on with me. He says, count it all joy for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. These trials that you are going through are going to forge you in fire. These trials that you are experiencing are going to grow you in ways that are not possible without the tests and without the trials. Count it joy because you remember that your Father loves you. On the contrary, we should actually be concerned when we don't have a lot of trials. It should strike fear and anxiety into our hearts when our lives are too easy. We count it joy when trials and struggles come because we know that God is at work in our lives, pushing us and stretching us. But from the very moment of Jesus rising from the dead onward, the church has been persecuted and has suffered. Even in chapter 8 of Romans, it says that we will suffer as he has suffered. That we will experience the glory only after we have suffered as he suffered. Suffering is promised and guaranteed. And when we experience trials and struggles of various kinds, it should bring joy to the depths of our heart. Not an immediate happiness. Not that fleeting emotion of, ooh, I'm pretty excited right now. All right, my favorite movie's coming out. This is great. Ooh, I get a steak. It's my favorite food. I'm kind of happy right now. Well, then you eat the whole steak, and what happens? Immediately you're miserable because you shouldn't eat the whole steak. So you start off happy. Ooh, I'm excited. I got a steak. And then you get through the steak. Oh, I ate too much. I'm miserable. This is awful. That's happiness. It comes and it goes. James is saying, count it joy. Contentment in our hearts and in our souls when we face various trials because God is growing us. But that doesn't make sense. I I don't get it. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Wish I could help you out there, but I, I don't know. But I know that the trials produce steadfastness. And steadfastness produces hope and faith. I know that the same thing is, is said in Romans chapter 5. That this is how God grows us. But all I can tell you is that God is so far beyond us. It makes sense to Him. It just doesn't to us. Have you ever thought about how much greater in wisdom God is than you and I? Oftentimes we can think very clearly on how much more powerful God is than us, right? God said, let there be. And there was. God said, I want light. And boom, light exploded onto the scene. We think about God's knowledge. He understands everything on a molecular level. He designed the neutrons and the protons and the electrons to go around and to form molecules. And then the molecules to form the cells and the cells to form all the stuff. He made all of that. We can conceive that God knows and is more knowledgeable than us. He invented AP calculus. If you've ever struggled with finding the derivative of some sine of cross of Z of X of Y, the cosine of the trigonometry, yeah, God invented all of that. He wrote the rules of the physics. And for some reason, it's easy for us to grasp that he has that much knowledge above us, but not consider he has that much wisdom above us. And we can't begin to understand what he is doing. It's so similar to a toddler. 18 months to two years, right? They walk over to the outlet. They're like, and they just, ooh, there's a line and a line and a dot. This looks great. 
I think I'll lick it. It just looks lickable. I'm just, I'm going to lick it. And then parents go, whoa, 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 stop right there. No, you do not lick outlets. No, ma'am. No, sir. We do not lick electrical outlets. And to that little toddler, it's like, but it's the most attractive thing I've ever seen. I just want to put my tongue on it. I don't understand. This is how I learned the world, mommy. This is how I learned the world, daddy. I just want to stick my tongue in the socket. Why are you so mean? And then they go after it again, and you have to pick them up and move them away. And what happens to that little toddler? Ah! What the outlet? They throw a tantrum. That's why we call it the terrible twos. If you've never experienced the terrible twos, let me tell you, it's coming, and and you're going to Love it. It's great. It's a wonderful time of teaching your child and your child perpetually not understanding. Do any of us take our little 18-month-old to 2-year-old baby after they try to lick the outlet and say, Now, son, let me break down to you how electric current works. There's alternating current. There's direct current. We've got AC. We've got DC. We've got 120 volts. We've got 220 volts. If you were to lick the dryer in there, it hurt twice as much as if you were to lick this outlet right here. I'm just going to break down the principles of electricity to you. We'll start with the hydroelectric dam and how the electricity is generated in the first place. No! What toddler's going to grasp hydroelectric energy production? None of them. If you've got a toddler that understands how electricity works, then listen to me. You start now because you are going to be a millionaire, all right? They're going to be geniuses. We don't waste our time explaining the principles of electricity to a toddler that will never understand. That same principle is true when it comes to God and us. As far above a toddler are we as adults, the Lord is infinitely more above us as toddler humans. Even when we've lived 80, 90 years and experienced all that life has for us, God's wisdom and life experience far supersedes anything we can begin to comprehend. I want you to think back even to the story of Job, right? All through the story of Job, Job says, I want to talk to my accuser. I want to talk to my God. I want to talk to the one who allowed all this to happen to me. I am ready to face them face to face. He says, I want to know why all this is happening. I'm a smart man. I'm a grown-up. I'm an adult. I can understand. I have lived. Maybe Job was in a midlife part. Maybe he's 50, 40, you know, somewhere in there. And he said, I've got 50 years of life experience. Surely I can understand what's going on here, Lord. You should be able to explain it to me. Right around chapter 38, God shows up. He goes, you're right, Job. 50-some-odd years of life is just a ton of life experience. You are wise beyond your years. But if you could just answer for me, Job, for just a second. When I hung the moon, what were you doing? You know, back before time, when I still existed but nothing else did, and then I decided to let there be light, and then I said, ooh, I think I'm going to make planets, and then I'm going to put moons to go around those planets. So I hung a moon in the sky for you to see every night. What were you doing? And Job said, ah, there's a place, uh-huh. He said, you know what, Lord, I'm, we're good. We're good, thanks. It was easier for God to explain to Job how much greater his wisdom, his knowledge, his experience is than it would have been to explain to Job, hey, here's exactly what's happening and why. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 8 through 10. Beginning in verse 8. 
speaking through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's just a scriptural evidence to prove God knows what he's doing. And it's so far beyond what we can begin to comprehend. He doesn't owe us an explanation. And I don't know that our tiny brains could comprehend it right now. Sometimes we will see the meaning in the various trials that we face. Sometimes we will get the joy of having a Joseph moment. Where we go, ah, now I know why I went to prison, why I was sold into slavery, how I ended up right here as number two to Pharaoh, and I had the opportunity to save not just my family, but the whole world from famine because we saved up food because God spoke to Pharaoh and allowed me to interpret that dream, and that's what all my suffering was for. Sometimes we get that Joseph moment, but sometimes it's like Job. Job never knew. Job never understood why he faced all those trials. Until he maybe stood before the Lord in glory. All the answer God gave to Job was, I'm bigger than you. I know more than you. Just trust me. And so James can write with all confidence to people being killed and murdered and blackmailed and blackballed out of their industry, kicked out of the guilds, nowhere for them to work, nowhere for them to get food, nowhere for them to live and exist. All they can do is keep going and trying to find somewhere and they share the gospel as they go. And he says and he writes in this letter to all of them, count it joy. Count it joy. And I want you to know that those last few verses, those last few verses, picking up at verse 5, if we don't understand and we want to understand, that's what verse 5 is about. It's not a hard shift of a topic change. In verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without, to all without reproach, and it will be given to them. Folks, if, if you're in the midst of trials and you can't count them as joy and you need wisdom from God, ask God and he will give it. But ask him with the same attitude that he doesn't owe you an explanation. Ask in faith that he might show it to you. But if you ask doubting, I don't even think there is a God. This prayer is absolutely worthless. There's no point to it at all. Don't expect for God to be doling out wisdom on you when you don't even believe He's there. Ask in faith. Don't doubt. Don't be double-minded. But let us approach God with no doubting. Don't be a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Ask God for wisdom. Trust and have faith that He will give you the wisdom necessary to endure the trial that you are facing. And God will pour out His wisdom upon you. It's not easy to count trials as a joy. But I want to just leave us with one last thing. It's a very familiar verse, Romans eight twenty eight. I, I particularly love the way the New International Version translates this. I, I think it grasps the concept going for in, in the Greek perfectly. Because God is the one who is working. And we know that in all things, God works. I just want to stop there. In all your trials, in all my trials, in all my tests, in all my good days, in all my bad days, 
and all my mountaintops and all my valleys and all my paydays and all my days where the money doesn't make ends meet. In all the days, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise, when things are awesome, when the cancer diagnosis comes in and things are awful, no matter what the situation, no matter where you are in this wide world or for that matter, anywhere in the universe, we know that in all things, God works. He isn't sitting around. He isn't picking his feet up. He's working. He is at work. And he works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, we can count all trials as joy because God is at work producing steadfastness, producing hope, producing faith within us, growing our wisdom, growing our maturity, preparing us for what is to come, giving us a testimony to share with someone else. He is at work for the good of those who love him and for his glory in all things. And so if we know the Lord, if we trust in Jesus, if we're willing, like James, his very own brother, to call him Lord and God, we can count all trials as joy knowing that he's at work in all things for the good of those who love him. So this morning, I just I want to ask, do you love him? Do you know him? When you read this verse and it says, for the good of those who love him, if you don't love God, if you can't, like James, call Jesus your Lord and your God, that's not talking to you. It's only talking to those who love God and are called according to to his purposes. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you don't call him your Savior and your Master and your Lord, I beg of you to trust in him today. If you do, and you're in the midst of some of the worst life you've ever experienced, I want to remind you that God's at work and he's going to use it somehow for good. And to trust that he knows what he's doing. Especially when it doesn't make sense to you and me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the truth that is found in it. We thank you, Lord, that because of the trials that our brothers and sisters thousands of years ago experienced, we have hope and encouragement today. Because they counted it as joy that they were persecuted and persecuted to the point of death, even gruesome deaths. Lord, and they still counted it as joy. We know that we can count it as joy. We know that we can count on the fact that you must be doing something in us or something through us. Lord, I, I can't help that I'm a toddler. So many times I feel like I want to just stick my tongue in that light socket. Thank you, Lord, for being wiser than me, from saving me from myself, from stopping me from doing things out of ignorance and stupidity. Lord, thank you that you love us and are willing to discipline us for our good and for your glory. Help us, Lord, to trust that you know what you're doing that you know better, you are wiser, that your ways are higher. 
and that you're up to something good for those who love you. Lord, we give you these moments of response and ask that, Holy Spirit, you would move among us. For those of us who have not yet called you Lord and Master, would you move on their hearts this morning? For those of us who are suffering, would you move on our hearts this morning? Would you help us, Lord, to remember how good you are? Help us to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.